0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, for our last Blister Podcast episode of 2020... We've got Cody Townsend back on to review the news and talk about chess and savants and skier savants. And then just a heads up, we do have a spoiler alert in here for the Queen's Gambit. But we tell you in the episode when we are going to start talking about the ending of The Queen's Gambit, and we will also have included in the show notes to this episode the timestamps so you can see when you should stop listening and then when it's safe to come back and keep listening to our conversation. So check out the timestamps for that, and then no endings shall be spoiled. Cody and I are also going to be talking about his new film, The Mountain Y, which you should definitely check out over on Cody's YouTube channel. And if you aren't sure how to type the name Cody Townsend into YouTube, then just click on the link that we will also have in the show notes to this episode. And just before we get going here, I want to make sure that you are aware of the conversation I had with Sage catabriga Alosa over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast channel, where I talked to Sage about biking and the similarities he sees between mountain biking and skiing, and there was a whole bunch more, and it's Sage talking about biking and skiing. I mean, come on. So you can check out that great conversation over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And now let's go ahead and start reviewing the news with Cody Townsend. And we're going to get going here with some opinions of Cody's that I'm not going to lie, have me slightly concerned for his safety. So I've got my fingers crossed for you, Cody, and let's just get to it. Well, Cody Townsend, how are you today and where are you today?
1: I am doing good. It is early and it is currently still dark here, huh. and I am in the land of the Jura. <laughs> As as Paul Forward and you recently talked about, uh-huh. I'm in Girdwood, Alaska, where these Jura coffee makers are incredibly popular, I guess. So, um, I don't know. I guess I got to go visit Paul and get a cup or something. There you go.
0: Yes, you should. Because, I mean, you know, since we like we like to keep it honest and keep it real around here, you did just talk quite a bit of shit about the Jura coffee maker before we started recording. And, that's, and I'm fine with that because we're going to be – we're going to be doing the right next to each other Mocha Master Jura A1 test. And I, I mean, I feel like you might stop talking to me after this test, or everyone in Girdwood will stop talking to me after. It's like a lose lose for me, either way.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, didn't exactly know what a giro was when you guys were talking about it. I had to look it up, and I was like, "Oh, it's all those coffee machines that are in hotels in Europe, and then it's like the only thing they have." And I was like, "Yeah, those things kind of suck." Like, and then I looked it up. I was like, "Whoa, they're eight hundred bucks for the cheapest one." I was like, "Oh God, that that." So, um, I yeah, what? Well, it's like a, I don't know. I guess automatic, halfway decent espresso is. Sort of worth it, but I don't, I don't know, find halfway decent espresso good at all. It's just more burnt and bitter than anything. I don't know. Like you got to get, uh, like not not the biggest espresso fan. Like, but when it's good, it is good. And the Jura, my my takes on it is not not amazing. So,
0: I mean, dude. So my worst case is everyone in Girdwood may stop talking to me, but you're literally there right now, so you might not make it out
1: alive. No, I know I might get chased down in the line, <laughs> like something be like getting. Sp- I might get a sp- uh, espresso splashed in my face and uh, in line. Be like, you don't like this, and throw it yeah. in your face or something. So I've, I got to be careful too. Maybe we release this pod in a couple weeks. Or <laughs> <leave>. <laughs> I'm
0: I'm slightly concerned for your safety. Anyway, I'm happy to be back doing another reviewing the news episode. I mean, we're going to kind of get all over the place in this one, I I think is fairly safe to say. And I definitely want to start with what just is my favorite topic of like the last four to six weeks, which is chess and the Queen's Gambit, which you've been watching. Did you finish this yet?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely finished it. It was like, yeah, that was one of those recommendations that we jumped right on, watched the entire thing. And yeah, my world of chess has kind of changed as well to the point where I have, I'm one of those people with all the stats that are coming out about that, how many people have signed up for chess.com and all that. Yeah. I have like three chess apps and have been learning because I have realized Actually, the first year of the 50, um, Bjarne had a chessboard and he's like, oh, let's play in our van. So we were starting to play and I just got my ass handed to me left and right. I was really bad at chess. So I set out after watching that. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll play and learn it a little bit. And so i have been playing these like tactics games and all these kind of like learning kind of style of games. And it is Chess is really fun and really hard. I can see why geniuses are good at it, because if you're not, it's really easy to suck at that game.
0: <laughs> I was worried that I sort of oversold
1: The Queen's Gambit. So only in the terms of like best sports documentary, that maybe didn't hit it as much. But I just thought it was an incredible film, like film series. And yeah, I do see the sports kind of side to it because my main takeaway from it which i didn't necessarily see in a lot of the media takes from it was that there's a price for gene being a genius there's a cost to it which is the only reason i didn't quite like the ending because it was too rosy and too happy should we say spoiler alert here yeah all right spoiler alert come back in in
0: a couple minutes
1: yeah like The fact that it just ended with her winning and happy and just going to the love of chess in the beginning, it was like, that's not how it works for geniuses. Like when, when it comes to being socially awkward and completely just have almost mental issues in terms of your connection to society and the absolute greatest in sports, like It's batting a thousand for being like weird because you look at like, you look at like the tiger woods of the world, like they have like issues. They don't fit in. They're driven to win at all costs. Like there is no love for the sport. It is utter dominance and utter competition that drives them to this point. And that's where I saw it from this athletic side is just like, yeah, if you want to be the greatest, you have to get rid of all comforts of normal life to be the greatest. And you see it across so many sports that the greatest always have issues. And when it comes to like the last dance and Michael Jordan, the guy is like practically a psychopath when it comes to his competitiveness and how much of an asshole he is. And it's just like, that was the one thing I didn't like about the ending was it just went to all rosy and happiness. Whereas like you watch in the last dance and Michael Jordan still his ass is chapped about certain little petty grievances from twenty five years ago. <laughs> you're like that is to me. You're like, yeah, that's what creates the greatest athletes of all time. And when it comes to chess, I would imagine to be the same. So that was the only thing I didn't like about it. But everything to it, I thought was was pretty genius.
0: Okay, I I need to reply. One, the claim about arguably the best sports you know, film TV show of 2020, that's been my Trojan horse. That's been my way to try to get people into it because, you know, when I started banging this drum loudly, like, I don't remember, four to six weeks ago, I was like, you're trying to tell all of these, you know, awesome skiers and, you know, smart people, but not necessarily folks who are like, oh, I'm dying to watch the new chess film. Right. So that was my Trojan horse The only other thing, I actually love the ending of Queen's Gambit. And here's why. We're still in spoiler alert, people. So we'll have show notes in this. So I sure hope you've, you know, abided our our warning, which I'll also put in the intro. The very last two words of the series, let's play. When you bring in Jordan, and and I think here's where I want to kind of go with this. Michael Jordan might be the most competitive person ever. The thing that I I wonder about when it comes to chess geniuses and savants I actually don't think that it is for them first and foremost about competition and winning like the thing that I think I liked about the Queen's Gambit and another thing that I'm now going to be like banging the new drum on there is this documentary on Magnus Carlsen who is currently the number one rated chess player in the world This documentary on Magnus is phenomenal. And I don't want to say too much about it because I'd rather people just go watch it first. But like, I think there is a bit of a difference between, say, the character of Beth in The Queen's Gambit and Magnus, a real-life human being. They can't stop thinking the game in a way that that's not true of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan... Could go to sleep at night and he wouldn't have plays, basketball plays running through his head nonstop that he couldn't turn off. So Jordan just needed to be beating somebody at something, whether it was, you know, the craps table or poker or basketball or anything. So for Jordan, the addiction was competition. I think at the savant level, it is the thing itself, if that makes sense. And I think. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to base this just because, because I'm a, I do not mean to act like I know anything about like, I'm no chess historian. I'm the furthest thing from it, but watch this documentary called Magnus and you'll see what I'm talking about. There is an obsession. They can't get away from the game in their head. They're playing nonstop. And I don't think that was true of Jordan. He just needed to be beating you at whatever the thing was in front of us, right? A- everything was an avenue to beating somebody at something. And I don't think that that's actually true when it comes to the world of the chess savant, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, I guess I can see that. And I can see that just that little difference between it and the, the chess savant. Maybe, yeah, I, I don't know anything about chess and i come to the lens from being a competitive and professional athlete and seeing like growing up with someone like lindsey vaughn and julia mancuso and seeing the differences what drove Lindsay to be the greatest ski racer in american history and greatest female ski racer of all time arguably greatest skier of all time and you're like the differences and you know the, the issues that she, she had and then what her boyfriend, Tiger Woods, had and all these things, I look at it from those lens and I just look at general that that mindset of you have like social abnormalities and you do not work within society is what creates these this greatness. And that's what I looked at. And I was seeing it the 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 show from that lens. So I can see that. Um, I mean, I know personally, like that obsession with sport, like the reason why I'm a professional athlete is because I was that way. I could not go to sleep at night without thinking about skiing. And it was just like through the summer, I like, all I could do is think about skiing and my whole entire life was thinking about skiing. It's why I always tell people when they're like, how, how do we become a professional? I'm like, if you're obsessed enough, you'll find a way. And that was what I always said. So, so it's interesting. I, I yeah, I, I like that take and it's shows how like our own perspectives and own situations can, you know, change your own perspective on things.
0: Hmm. So you may be just kind of, offered up yourself as an example of this, I'm not sure, but I, I I did want to ask you in the space of the savant, right? like Queen's gambit. I'm talking about the real life Magnus Carlson. I think you've talked well about like a savant is probably by definition someone who doesn't function totally seamlessly within you know normal society. but I was I wanted to ask you like, is there anyone? who you would point to in the ski world who might qualify as a savant to you. And I guess maybe I've just argued just being intensely competitive is maybe a different thing than being a savant.
1: Yeah. Well, first off, I would say, like uh, using me as an example of absolute not to qualify the word as savant, because I think a savant is you do things almost effortlessly, like you are playing chess on the ceiling. Yeah, and, and you're in your night and you're sleep and it just comes to you. I feel like there's a definition for a certain type of athlete or a certain type of great that is just you work harder at it than at other people. That's like a Lindsay Vaughn. Um, Julia Mancuso was more the savant in it, she was just naturally talented. But for me, there's only like one skill or I truly know that was a savant there could be more and I don't know but the one I am personally obsessed with is Shane McConkie like I mean you're talking about a guy that one athletically could do anything he wanted at any time he revolutionized two different sports being base jumping and um, skiing he was like at the top of the game People don't realize his impact on park skiing when he was doing switch front flips and switch back flips and switch Baranis and all this stuff that he's like 33 years old and inventing park tricks that would define park skiing for a long time. But then also you look at his contributions when it comes to the actual like equipment and how he was just so much further ahead of it being creating rocket skis, reverse camber skis, um, reverse side cut skis, fat skis. Like he, he introduced Two of the most important contributions to ski technology in the last 30 years being that you know fat skis was like yeah these things that people say are old guy skis are actually really bad at better for everything in soft snow and then with reverse reverse side cut and reverse camber like introduced the concept of rocker and it was like that you know they're very simple things but he broke the mold twice to kind of revolutionize the sport so to me he was like kind of the only savant like he just did it without trying he you know he was obviously obsessed with it and he worked at it but it was like these things just came to him and he was to me like the one savant I've ever witnessed in our in our in our free skiing sport really
0: that was a great answer and the name that i would want to put forward and now i'm saying this i haven't met this person but if i had to think like if there was the equivalent of the skier who just in is in his or her bed every night looking up at the ceiling and instead of seeing moving chess pieces on the board is still envisioning skiing, I think I would nominate Henrik Harlow.
1: Yeah, I think that could be up there for sure. Like Henrik is just on a different level when his creativity and what he's brought to the sport in terms of the stuff he does. And yeah, like next level obsession with the sport where you're just like this guy lives, breathes skiing. Like I, I know like as you get into a career You know, your motivation can dwindle a little bit or your inspiration can dwindle and I can notice in my own life in certain ways and I have to kind of branch out to get inspired by certain other things. And you're like, here's Henrik and it's like June in Europe and he's still like sliding a seven foot rail and you're like, dude, you're like the greatest it, you know you're the greatest athlete in the sport right now, and you're like hiking a four foot rail in the middle of June. You uh, definitely live, breathe, and like eat, sleep skiing. So yeah, I could see Henrik being on that list too.
0: And and just to put a bow on it, and then to move off of this topic. So you know, it while you have you've explained why you maybe dislike the ending to Queen's Gambit. Would it surprise you at a, at all? For Henrik to go win an Olympic gold medal or win an X Games gold medal, hit the sort of pinnacle achievement. But then as he's like leaving the arena, he f- sees some kids hitting a crappy rail somewhere and he's like wants to stop to, to join in on the session. Right? I mean, let's play. That's Henrik. Boom. Yeah.
1: Yeah that's that's definitely had that's definitely Henrik whereas I look at I looked at the the whole Queens gamut from the lens of like Michael Jordans and Tiger Woods and Lindsey Vaughn's where you're just like you were driven to win you were driven to win at all costs and you like you don't even really necessarily participate in the sport unless there's competition to it so so yeah no there, there's two different kind of I think there's two different greats of it and I think this is why we as a culture kind of worship savants quite often because it's just like this purity to it and, and that's why we like the ending uh, general of something like Queen's Gambit. And I, I look at it like quite often. I look at the stories of greats and, and sports and kind of see them as tragedy sometimes, you know, like in the you're like, yeah, the, you won. But at what costs? And they, they kind of say that in the I think it's like the third episode when Harry... Was it Harry? The um the first uh grandmaster Shishi Beats said something to the sword, and I was like, that was the most powerful thing. It's like you you want to be great, but you don't know the costs yet. And that was kind of like what I really took away from it is like, yeah, it take it takes a uh, piece of your soul to be the greatest at something. Yeah. So Interesting. So uh, Queen's Gambit, moving on to another topic. And this is where you led the show saying like, this is going to go all over the place. And this is something I almost didn't necessarily feel super comfortable talking about. But When I put it out there to the world, it was like, "Hey, what? Put it out on social media. Like, what do you want us to talk about?" This was the one most talked about. It could be recency bias or whatnot, but it was the appointment of Deb Haaland to the Interior Secretary, so the head of the Department of Interior, which is pretty groundbreaking in that she's the first Native American to ever head this post, and like, it's groundbreaking for the fact that like, you know, the Department of Interior. It runs the Bureau of Indian Fairs. The Bureau of Indian Fairs used to be run by the Department of War, which says something to be said for what our country is kind of perceived with Native Americans and tribal lands. And and so there's a lot of hope in that, and especially for what we're going to talk about being as a skier, what does that mean to us? But again, I was almost a little hesitant to jump into it because you jump into a policy world. I don't think you or I consider ourselves even remotely Expert at and like you're like, well, as an expert, I don't really like talking about it. But I guess there is some takes as a skier we could kinda we can kind of get into. We'll put a link
0: in the show notes to this episode. And I think it's absolutely you put a link. I mean, obviously a number of different media outlets have been covering this, but it's a Washington Post article that that you sent over my way. And it's just really interesting in terms of some of the different people that are being given appointments in the Biden administration, Deb being one of them. And, you know, I I think uh, I want to reiterate, like, neither you nor I are policy experts on this stuff. And I, you know, don't care to pretend that I am, but it is interesting. I think that we are seeing a good bit of diversity that seems long overdue, in terms of some of these appointments and if you go read about some of the different backgrounds of these people I think there is reason for optimism here and you know I think my biggest takeaway on some of this is these are really important positions and ultimately at the end of the day I think all of us need to just judge we don't it's not enough to just celebrate yay like we have more diversity in a cabinet that's that's step 1 Now, though, it's like, let's see what these people can do. And I will be cheering them on. But I think I personally need to continue the mission of just getting more informed about the different nuances of some of the different issues. And I think maybe you want to talk a little bit about some of that here in a second. Like, well, what does this mean to us as skiers here? Um, But I think this is a seems like a laudable first step with these appointments. And now I'm here to cheer on these people in these appointments. But at the end of the day, mostly, we just need to see really positive steps being not just talked about, but made from a policy point of view. And I've got a lot of education that I need to do along those lines.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And to that note, like, well, one, it's interesting to first, because I think one, it showed a little bit of activism worked because there was a huge wave to try and get Deb into this appointment. And there was like from the progressive side of the Democratic Party, it kind of worked. I also think it worked because of the fact that Native Americans pretty much proved to deliver Arizona for Biden and, you know, friends of mine that are skiers were integral in the the native vote getting out the native vote and educating and getting people to the polls. So I think there's that little bit of reward there as well. But for us as skiers, like when I, I went to the um, Department of Interior's kind of website, and as it currently stands, so they list the number one priority, uh, mineral and en- energy security, and then outdoor recreation, conservation, stewardship, wildlife production, and tribal management. And you, you that almost gets completely turned upside down on... Uh, the priorities of Deb Howland, and I think we as skiers value two things most, which is wildland protection and climate change, and that was what Deb is really coming in here for. For first, of like taking federal lands like BLM and not the hey like close this off and sell it off to private companies for energy and mining, but let's like develop this into green energy uh, development and stuff like that. So I think as skiers, it's like we kind of have the first real, real climate progressive politician in a very important sector Um, you know we saw in the last four years more and more federal lands being sold off to private companies to places being forever altered because of mining and energy acquisition and so like there's some hope in in that side. Um, Like to your point, though, is like, how much can we get done? God, I mean, this is like, the whole thing with federal government is you want to put a lot of energy and weight in it. But it's also like, this is trying to turn the, you know, these are trying to turn battleship, not battleships, but aircraft carriers, like, these things take a long time to turn. So hopefully she can get a lot done. You know, I found it interesting, too, in that there's this there's a stat that says 94% of Americ Native Americans do not trust the federal government. Good reason. You start to read about yeah, you start to read Native American history and you're like, yeah, the federal government's kind of screwed them over left and right. And so one, you're like re- restoring that trust is good because as some of my friends that like run Native Outdoors and are Native American Outdoorsmen, they their goals for themselves as outdoorsmen for their tribes it aligns with those of us as skiers and outdoor recreationalists. Like, we want to preserve wildlands for recreational access, and we want to preserve the world from changing, altering forever because of climate change. So, like, get like joining up on that same cause is really important for us and built rebuilding that trust is like really important. So, you know, it's interesting. I, again, like it's hard to really know the nuance of what can actually get done, but I do know you're like, well, the last two guys that were in there were literally lobbyists for oil and mining companies. So maybe this is finally someone that's kind of on our side as skiers and outdoorsmen that will kind of, you know, align with our goals. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I will say, and this is a, the downside, so doing in some research, and this is one thing I kind of talk about, you talk about federal lands. Well, the most important federal land to us as skiers is the National Forest Service. The National Forest Service pretty much runs all the forests that we backcountry ski on and that we frontcountry ski on. And this is where there was one thing that was kind of like a caveat to this, where it was like there was so much cheering from our sector of like, yeah, Deb Hallen, this is amazing. You're like, well... The person and the group that runs the the National Forest Service is the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, and that's run by this guy Tom Vilsack, who is the governor of Iowa, who really has done nothing for climate change. He's been in politics for his entire life and has had appointments in this the USDA before and has pretty much done nothing. So, I, I can also see you know, like well. This goes into that, like, there's a lot of hope, but like how much can change when it's just one person at one little head and then you've got someone like Tom Vilsack running what I think is the most important to us is the National Forest Service.
0: Yeah, I I, I don't know. I mean, as a, as just a citizen of this country who wishes that he was just better informed on so many fronts. I find myself, I don't know if this is just simplistic or silly, but I just keep hoping that we are putting smart, honorable people in these different positions because I I don't know the arguments about politics on social media or at the bar where I often just feel like this is a bunch of people who just don't actually know the issues well enough to be yelling at each other right now, you know, and that's often my view of many political conversations is like, at the end of the day, what I can root for is just well-intentioned, honorable people, I want more and more of those in every political office of every country on the planet. (laughs) And if it's like, great, we need a lot more than that, I understand that. But I would say, well, I don't feel like I see, I don't feel like this is a given that I look around at a lot of political leaders and just think, oh, he or she is this person of incredible character. Right. So I still am at a point where I want to see that and then, you know, hope that these people whose job it is to be the most informed are out there representing all of us in the best possible way and moving forward. You know, moving us into a better position in terms of policy. So apologies to everyone if that sounds naive, but the world I look around and see, we still kind of need the people of character, honorable people, just getting in these positions in the first place
1: yeah no i i agree with you and i'm like pretty it's like the more you know about politics the more you can just be you're like either can become disgusted by it or you can also just be like yeah it's kind of the way it works and that's the way i end up seeing the things and I, you just want like good people that don't bow down to i don't know a dollar that's in front of them uh yeah, as opposed to representing us and you know it's 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 interesting because we're in a we're in a weird time where it's like feels like yeah like everyone knows more about politics they've ever known but also less than they've ever known because it feels like it's just all summed up in 244 characters the way in a tweet and like yeah just yelling about it does us no good you know i'm the first one i I will be slow to ever comment on stuff because i'm like oh if this is the topic du jour right now well i'm gonna try and read as much as i can about this before ever talking about it i hate that like i like oh, I saw a headline, now let's make a giant comment about it. And that's what I look at with the, the Deb Haaland thing. I think it's really cool, I think it's really positive, but you're like, how much can get done? I don't know, um, I really, uh, we, I think we put too much hope in these positions sometimes, just like we put probably too much hope in, in uh, um, politicians in the past. And, you know, there's a giant machine that has to turn. We, I, I know working with large companies, like it takes a while for them to co- change course. And you're talking about a federal government of the United States to actually change course it's going to take to me it takes generations not just like one four-year quick little appointment but I think we do have hope as skiers that you know hey like we finally have someone maybe in our corner a little bit that that's running something that is important to us so um, that's my only kind of take with it I do again have like Native American buddies that are just like so fired up for this and you're like awesome. They're like, that's, that's great. Because yeah, Native Americans in this country are still pretty much one of the most segregated and like worst put off minority groups in their country. So to have someone that cares for their rights, Um, like I said, in the beginning, that listing and order had tribal management as the lowest priority of the department of interior and that'll probably go to a higher um higher so so for them i'm, I'm really fired up for us as skiers i think it's a positive thing and i guess the one thing i i kind of didn't say this before and when i was kind of talking about the usda and tom vilsack was i have a friend that had this idea so i think we uh, skiers that live in ski communities know it's, it's really hard to live in a ski town it's really unaffordable there's not a lot of great jobs um, your main job provider is centered around a ski resort and those ski resorts are all kind of owned by two companies these days maybe three but majority of ski areas are in the hands of a few and how how do we solve these issues how do you how do you like make a ski town more affordable and um how do you make it so that people are paid more of a living wage and when there's almost like monopolies of this and that was where a buddy had an idea and why i pointed to the national forest service is like all these lands that these ski resorts are on are run by the national forest service they're leased land there's very few private land ski areas and he had this thought of saying he was like what if they made it from the federal government side where it's like you literally have to provide access for people that don't necessarily have as much financial comfort as the the wealthy traveling from New York or Texas to come to your ski area to be able to ski it or else we'll pull your lease, that kind of stuff. Because you think about it, you're like, yeah, these are federal public lands that they're making billions off of, but also kind of limiting the access to federal public lands by making this incredibly high cost to even just go on them. And it was the first idea I heard of that was like, oh yeah, that's actually where the power is, is federal leasing and leasing of the National Forest Service. And so that's why I pointed to the Tom Vilsack. It was like, if you start lobbying in those ways, like, I mean, imagine if you threatened Vale with, hey, you're not going to get your, your, leases for your ski areas next year because let's say this lawsuit that is going on currently of um, Vail being sued for federal labor labor violations, which we don't know the extent of it. We don't know the details of it. uh, It's been in the media, but that's why it goes to court is because it goes to court because they they try and find out if these allegations are true. Um, But let's say they are true. And let's say like they're like, hey, you don't get your lease anymore. Like you all of a sudden kneecap a multi-billion dollar corporation. So you're like, oh, there, there's someone, if you have someone in your corner as skiers to help solve some of these issues uh, at the USDA and the National Forest Service would be kind of the only idea I heard of that was interesting to me. I was like, oh, there's that's where the power is. <laughs> so, but what exactly
0: is the idea? Is the thought that I mean, are we are we suggesting something like if your primary residence is in or near a ski area, then then what? Then you're getting a discounted season pass or like, how are you?
1: You just have to pay a living wage for your ski community. Pay a living wage. At a ski resort, you know, and because you are making money off of federal public property that you and I pay taxes for but if you as a company that has paid for a lease and are making money off that don't pay a living wage to the people in that's a you know work for you then you've then you can get your lease pulled. That's where it kind of like little basic stuff like that. That makes sense. You know, not saying that like, Oh, you have to completely reshape your entire town and force into a weird side of like, I don't know, forced capitalism where you have to meet these requirements, but it's just like basics of just like, if you don't pay living wages for your community that you are, you know, kind of sequestering by owning, owning this public property, then You know, we can pull your lease and there's I don't think there's ever been necessarily history of pulling a lease from it. But if that threat is there, you're definitely going to get big companies like Avail all of a sudden paying a little bit closer attention to to their community and what they're doing for it so it's just one it was an interesting thought I don't know if it's if it's a solution I don't know if that's you know a great thing but it was the first time I thought about like all these issues that we face as as small mountain towns and the inaffordability of it and the fact that like I'm sure you see it in Crested Butte just like I see it in Tahoe. It's like resort workers are living in Reno and commuting an hour to get up there because they can't afford to live in Tahoe City because... There's just no, the the housing prices don't match the wages there, and so, but there's no other job sources, so it was it was an interesting kind of thought, um, and that was one thing to bring up from this this kind of interior um, appointment was like where politics can affect us, where federal politics can affect us uh, at little ski communities. Yeah, good enough that deep one. I I felt nervous talking about that.
0: <laughs> I frankly wish more people did feel nervous talking about political issues. It's like there just needs to be I think a bigger acknowledgement that we are not all in possessions of the whole story. So I think that just warrants treading lightly and I I hope that like so somebody who wants to get on and criticize us that we don't know ex- everything that we're talking about here, yes, we agree, but we want to tread lightly and hopefully use this as a catalyst to start thinking better, learning more about some of these Like identify the issue, learn more about potential solutions. That seems like how conversations
1: should work. I agree. So and now we'll, we'll get into our next heavy topic, topic number three for it. Um, it felt like a heavy month of, of ski news, I thought. And I think it's continuing to be heavy right now. And the wind, we didn't have as much of boiling chickens and um, hot spring kind of fun articles. But this one was, it actually kind of got announced a couple months ago, but became more official by sending it out this week, but powder magazine closing. I did point to a... Um, podcast with Sierra Schaefer who was the editor of editor in chief of Powder magazine and kind of her take on it and you know there's obviously we've seen a lot of tributes to it uh, um, there's been ads given to it that were kind of tribute to the legacy of powder and we're all kind of mourning it but i wanted to ask like this question which may seem really flippant but is powder magazine necessary is it like in our day and age like is it just a blip in time and we're moving on from it or do we do we need powder magazine well, I'm going to volley it back to you. What's your take? I mean, I, I feel like you
0: and I clearly come from such obviously different backgrounds on this that I, I'm more interested in hearing your answer. So back at you.
1: Well, for me, like one, yes, like it shaped my life being that the first time you got a powder magazine and you're 15 years old and you would just, it was a Bible. It was the skier's Bible. It was that one source that you just got all your stoke and all your news about. And, you know, back then, like for me back then, being like the late 90s, it was like the only way you found out about random ski areas in Montana was from Powder Magazine. The only way you heard about who was the the best skier in the uh, of that time was from powder magazine just the deepest powder shots like these incredible stories it was the bible and you just like you cherished it as such and so it shaped my life um entirely and then it even shaped my life as we got into more in the future whereas as i was a professional skier like getting on the cover of it could shape your career winning powder awards for their uh, their movie awards would shape your career it was incredibly important into your career as a professional skier and it was also really important to just even getting people into skiing you know there's so many of the stories you hear of of people moving out from out east to out west because of one article in powder magazine so those kind of things yeah it was really important same time like that kind of almost monopoly of information, because just the nature of it doesn't exist anymore. You can get all that information and all that stoke from a bevy of sources all over, um, mainly through the Internet, you know. So in a certain way, you're like, I kind of look at it as like it was an important kind of culture definer of Of skiing, I liked that they were a curator of kind of what is the most important stories to tell. And I think that was important. But I think as far as their role, it's kind of that time is sort of dried up and there's some other forms that will rise from it that could have the same importance. Is it print? I don't know. You know, the whole argument is print dead versus prints not dead people yell print's not dead from the the rafters and yeah like there's certain parts of it that yeah print is not dead but then there's certain parts you're like yeah why why print a magazine when you can find everything online much easier at your fingertips so like I think I will miss the the curation of content but even myself like I'd get a copy of it and I'd flip through it a lot quicker and you go back to watching the latest videos and the latest content from some other sources and like to me it was it was a it was a a time period and that time period's over. It might come back. That was what they point to in the in the the podcast is they actually don't entirely know if it's gonna close up shop forever. But I think we will we will fill the void. I think culture, the ski culture will be defined in, in other ways. I do like the third party kind of validation that a media source can give to content that's being out there. But at the same time, it's like, I, I've mourned it, but I'm also not like, oh my God, skiing's dead. Like, we'll move on. We'll do well. We'll lead the, the people that are important. will will come to the, the forefront and hopefully help lead the sport like Powder once did.
0: Yeah. And I, I do. I mean, I, I think you are a kind of quintessential example of you've already spoken well about this, but somebody who, you know, powder was, I feel like a really significant part of your own story, your love of skiing, helping you along in your career and the rest. And like, I, I respect all of that. And I, I just worry that like, I, I, I think, and you've already spoken well too about the people who read a story or read an issue and, and moved, <laughs> you know, based on that. And, and I, I respect all of that. I, something I feel acutely aware of is that I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about almost everything as an institution, whether it's a business, whether it's a publication, and institutions rise and fall. That's one thing we know about human existence is nations come into being and then cease to exist. Brands do. Publications do. And I don't know, as somebody who runs a media company, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and where are we headed next? What is something we're doing that is actually a Bad path, maybe we're on, and I don't know. I mean, it, I will confess that you know your story is your story. I mean, there is a part that, and I've I've told my own story on this as somebody who came to skiing later in life. A huge part of what I was trying to do was just get caught up in the world of you know and, and knowing like. The right mountain bike would probably help me progress a lot as a mountain biker, or I'm trying to buy climbing shoes, right? Because I'm getting into climbing and I have no clue where to begin. And the same went for ski equipment. And unfortunately, just a part of the story that I thought that the current consumer product information was so lacking In a number of industries, but certainly in the ski world that it literally caused me to like create my own company, you know, and so those are things where I think I saw certain things that were lacking that maybe weren't just part of the real mission of something like powder, but I don't know. You know, these are these are the things we evaluate or have to think of in terms of any media entity or again, just the natural rise and fall of certain institutions. And and I probably am somebody who is like, I, I didn't like the fact that I felt like while powder was so influential and instrumental in helping people see and experience the larger ski world there was, in my opinion, a disservice being done when it came to just trying to help people actually get on the mountain and enjoy their day because we weren't seeing enough straightforward, honest assessments of like, this really expensive equipment would be really beneficial for you or not the right thing for you. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking now. I don't know that anybody really needs to Know that, and I'm not trying to throw dirt, you know, at anybody right now. I say all this in service of the greater point that certainly any of us in the media game just need to be thinking about how are we best serving a community or serving an audience. And I certainly appreciate that in Powder's case, they were dealing with a parent company that, you know, they weren't necessarily allowed to do just every single thing that they might want to do
1: yeah and i get exactly what you're talking about because and you're kind of talking about the evolution and what my point was was that powder has this this blip in time it is important part of ski history but what we're seeing with it and what i really put the blame in is, is none of the editors, none of the content they were pulling out, we can dump into, you know, there was points of time where I thought that, you know, oh, they were going a little too like dark and ski journalism versus kind of ski stoke. All that stuff doesn't matter. Cause ultimately what it was, was they were hamstrung by large multinational corporations that really kind of sucked them dry and they weren't able to evolve. Like, they could have created blister if, you know, the drive and someone, the directive was like, hey, we're kind of not necessarily, we have one issue. It's pretty small and it's not necessarily very gear focused and is super as intensive, but there's this guy, Jonathan Ellsworth, he's going to do some stuff. Let's buy them up. Like they could have cre- continued with that. But, you know, corporate ownership was like trying to suck them dry as opposed to try and uh, invest in it. So I look at it as important part of ski history. And I look forward to kind of the evolution of it. Like, for instance, as an athlete, one of the things I like about this new age, and we can blame the internet for killing magazines, but the same time, like magazines killed magazines as well. Because like, I look at the democratization of kind of media. And the fact is like, there was gatekeepers in back in the day like you had a photo editor and a senior editor at powder that kind of made could help make or break it could have been completely unbiased they were doing that but they also they'd be like yeah not 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 that person on the cover or whatever it was not that they're saying they would do that but now you can like like there's for instance there's a kid nikolai Shermer out of um norway and he's blowing up with this youtube series he's done and like he wouldn't ever be able to do that and rise from nothing to where he's at right now without the Internet. And it's really cool to see him be able to create his own story in the way he's doing skiing just out of nothing. And that's what's really cool about this evolution of media. And I look forward to it again. I do. I will miss the little bit of like the curators like, hey, he here's what's important, like the third party. But I look at powder as like as an important mark of our history. We can mourn it, but we're going to move on and we're going to move on fine. Um, I look at, too, the evolution of media. You look at, like, the subscription model that's starting to become out there more, like, what you guys are doing, what Mountain Gazette is doing. Like, the the magazines I subscribe to follow those. Like, I follow—I'm, like— A New Yorker, Alpinist, and Mountain Gazette. And they all follow new models where it's more about the subscription, more about the audience, less about the advertising dollars. And that's just the evolution of it. I don't look at Powder Magazine's dead, I look at corporate ski media's dead. So hopefully that's the, you know, we can end that chapter and we can evolve better learn from kind of the mistakes of it or of what happened with with powders kind of ownership and evolve better to kind of have those culture setters in skiing yeah so yeah next topic so we're so you know we have our blevin's corner um first actually And we have two in Blevins Corner, and I will first say that I actually talked to Jason after this. I got something wrong in the last podcast, and he was very adamant about correcting this, was he didn't get fired from Denver Post because they got bought up by a giant media. He quit in protest. So... (laughs) They laid off a ton of people. He wasn't necessarily part of those uh, layoffs. He quit in protest. And he has since started the Colorado Sun, which is his own media entity, subscription model-based news media, specifically for Colorado and a lot for skiing. So I I wanted to correct that for the record.
0: Props to Jason for protests are cool things. It's a very American thing to do, and I'm, I'm all for it.
1: So we got two topics in Blevins' corner because he continually creates really good media. Um, But this first one was an article that was gear companies regretting slashing budgets. So this is an article that goes deep into kind of some of the, the stats of backcountry gear shops, like specifically in Colorado. So you're like Neptune Mountaineering, Cripple Creek Backcountry, just selling 60 to 70 to 80 percent more year to year in the months the previous months so october they're up like 70 percent when it comes to backcountry equipment and then how gear companies are regretting slashing those budgets and my my first take on it is like like just straight up laughing like (laughs) like how did you guys not see this coming like there were so many signs and i say i laugh at it because i'm like I was in these meetings screaming at them going like, guys, like what's happening in bike right now? This is gonna happen. Like we saw these stats in mountain towns and it was again, what Blevins article pointed to like people from the cities, like the Zoom generation were just moving to mountain towns in mass And those people are moving up there. They're going to need new ski gear. They're going to need new bikes. And this summer previewed it of bike sales going through the roof. And now backcountry sales are going through the roof. So like for, I I witnessed it of gear companies, specifically in our space, Cutting their budgets, cutting production for this. And you're like, dude, you guys are going to miss out on this. There are macroeconomic things of production, obviously, that have been hampered by this global pandemic that couldn't control it. Like, I know products have been late. They just haven't been able to get them. So there's that side of the equation, which you can't comment to. But witnessing, one, I've seen shops refuse product, turn shipments away because they were so fearful of this but you're like every sign was pointing to this and why did the people at the top think like no let's slash our budgets and not produce this gear when everything was pointing to this so that's why I kind of laugh at it because I'm like I I didn't want to be right necessarily but I remember being like telling every company I like work with be like dude backcountry scales are going to explode don't like don't pull back on that. And I've, there's certain companies that aren't um, and there certain companies that are and they're definitely hurting because of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think I have anything to add to that other than like all of us all the time, we certainly in business, the most successful companies are gonna read and see the crystal ball more clearly. And I kind of agree with you. The ski industry had an advantage over the bike industry. I think the bike industry was going in in the dark and there were probably a lot of, there were a lot of questions about everybody just got fired or, you know, like everybody just lost their salaries. Uh, No one's going to be spending any money. Well, that was the bike industry. And then we saw bike sales go through the roof because everyone was stuck inside there you weren't doing any public gathering in anywhere so it turns out go ride your bike by yourself you know and um i don't know i do th- i agree with you that the ski industry had the luxury position of coming after the bike industry
1: yeah i will say the one caveat to it is like yeah Backcountry skiing is still a very small segment of the sport as a whole, like we're talking like 10 to 15% of overall net revenue. So even investing more into backcountry skiing and backcountry products wasn't going to save them. But I do know some of the internal numbers, which I won't share from certain companies, I, I can I sneak my way to get some of these access to the numbers within the industry and see some of the reports. Um, you know, the ski industry as a whole is not down as much as you would expect, um, and Backcountry sales are making up for that. But overall, they're still down. And so I get it. Like your average average weekend warrior vacation skier that goes to, you know, Copper Mountain for a week with their family is actually what keeps the the industry afloat. And that is down a lot. Um, But, you know, for the backcountry stuff, there was... There were companies that were cutting in that area and I still see them cutting. And you're like, look, invest, we should invest more in this, um, you know, invest not only in just making the products, but just in the education of it, the content around it, just the whole kind of the world around it. Because I just think this accelerated the popularity of backcountry skiing, um, but it it was already proving to be coming more and more popular so um you know the what i also look at too is there's going to be an explosion of people this year that go out there and all of a sudden figure out that wait backcountry skiing is really hard and it's really exhausting and uh we'll see that and we might see a little bit of shrink next year but because of the fact that like i think people are in for a kind of royal um ass whooping for their first couple times out being like oh my god this is really exhausting so um but that article was it was interesting because it was I don't know, if you saw that, like you said, if your crystal ball was clear, you could see this coming from a mile away and we had the luxury that the the bike industry didn't. Yeah. Second
0: Blevins article, right? And related, new Colorado avalanche study reveals troubling trend heading into busy backcountry season. Do you want to kind of summarize this one?
1: It's kind of segues perfectly. Um, I've seen a lot of worry from the industry and good worry that this there's a lot of people getting into backcountry skiing and backcountry skiing is dangerous it is not like mountain biking like when you're mountain biking you might fall off and you could hit your head really hard and you could have serious injuries but the entire Slope the entire trail you're going down isn't going to avalanche and kill you. Um, so there's a lot of there's been a lot of fret about like oh my god, this explosion going to be related to is there going to be a lot more deaths in in our sport because of this? And the the avalanche study that um, Blevins wrote an article about was pretty much pointing to the exact opposite, which was that people with advanced experience and high avalanche education are involved in more avalanche accidents. Um, And we're involved in more avalanche accidents after the shutdown than any of beginners getting into trail, um, into backcountry skiing and into trouble. So that worry is in a certain way a little misplaced. Um, Like, yes, we should worry about backcountry skiers and try and get them educated. But it's actually the people that are have take their avi one that backcountry ski here and there that are getting into trouble and getting killed at a higher rate than than beginners and to me it was actually very unsurprising because when you see a lot of the data um, when you know like some of the most likely people to be killed in avalanches are avalanche forecasters themselves which you're like wait how do they they're the ones putting you know the forecast out and you're like well because when you're out there that much time you know more time out there means more stuff can happen and sometimes you can get complacent the more that you get like educated in avalanches like one of the things i say is like the two most useful tools in backcountry skiing and not getting caught in avalanche are fear and extreme caution and fear and extreme caution tend to get eroded the more time you spend out there and the more education you get you kind of start to get that human hubris of like no i know what's going on out here but ultimately you're still in avalanche terrain and things can happen that you might not be able to predict and um you know we see that there's been three avalanche deaths in colorado in this last week and i don't know about the two that were in silverton but we do know the one in um crescent butte where you're at was very very experienced person like uh, a ski patrolman, a person that spends majority of their time in the backcountry, these, these are the people that are actually the ones getting getting in accidents.
0: Yeah, and I have a lot of thoughts on this, and they it keeps kind of ping pong balling around in my head. And you know, this is real sensitive stuff, I think. And so, you know, I'll, I'll ask for. Uh, I'll ask for kind of forgiveness up front or or just charity here as we kind of want to try to touch on this a bit. And here's a kind of like disparate thoughts and reactions I've had. One, when somebody dies in the world, that's always a sad thing, I'd argue. Uh, They will leave behind friends and people who love them. Another thing to say is I really want to just see zero deaths in the backcountry because I really do care about this backcountry culture and the fact that there are a lot of new people coming in to this sport. And I think that I want there to be good model setting in the sense that I hope the new people coming in are just very clear that there are just absolutely days when you don't even think about going out there or you turn around. Right. And in that sense, you know, getting to, I want to say like we ought to get to the point where there are virtually no deaths, at least no deaths caused because people were going out in pretty sketchy conditions. Now, here's my third thing I want to say. I also re-watched last night your film, Peak Obsession. And my God, re-watching the climb up Meteorite, like I was getting sweaty palms, you know, because it is so clear that at any point on that climb, somebody could have slipped a foot, right? You just slipped a foot. And they're dead. And, you know, I'm having thought of these recent backcountry deaths, that's very much to mind. I was sitting there thinking, do I think this is an irresponsible thing for Cody and this group to be doing? And the answer was no, because I don't think anyone in that group was unclear of the risks at hand. And, and so now I'm coming sort of circling back around, you know, I still believe in freedom and the right for human beings to make their own decisions and live with the consequences of those things. And if someone dies in the back country and they understood the risk that he or she was taking in that moment, as long as it is not leading to the death of someone else who maybe wasn't on that same page of accepting risk tolerances. That's where I want to sort of complicate maybe my, the the second point I just made again, I, I believe in human freedom and I believe in, professionals, you know, doing things to sort of test their own limits and the rest. And I think that's a huge element of why many of us enjoy getting into the backcountry or skiing or mountain biking, et cetera, et cetera. I am not a person who is trying to weed out all risk from human existence. And now I'm going to just stop talking because I think like, like I said, these are sort of some disparate elements that don't come necessarily to like, and th- and here then is the algorithm that we can just punch in the numbers all the time to get to exactly the right answer for what a responsible decision does or doesn't look like. Cody, I'm done. What are your thoughts?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that this goes into really deep territory um, because there's, there's two things to, to it. And one we in the avalanche community are seeing less, deaths per capita of backcountry user these days. And I think because of the main thing that's being taught these days isn't necessarily the science of avalanches, all the kind of reading of it, whatnot. It's about decision making. Um, They're talking more about heuristics uh, these days. Social heuristics, your own decision making um, is far more important. It like points back to, you know, I remember digging my first pit 2015 years ago, getting my results and then getting away with like, wait, what do I do now? Nowadays, they're teaching you, okay, this is what you do now. Um, So I look at things like, yeah, there are ways to ski in the backcountry and potentially have zero deaths in a season. I think it's a very, very, very long shot, but there are ways. Like, When I look at like peak obsession, so I gave a a presentation for Alpenglow, a local shop recently in this fundraiser, and it went into a lot of mentorship and decision making, and it went to uh, Jeremy and I doing Meteorite together. And one thing that you it's hard to tell but this only comes through years of experience and it's hard to tell in a movie form as well and one i actually want to do a kind of bonus episode about is line selection so we were going climbing up that like very knife edge spine and it falls away on both sides of you for a thousand feet on your left thousand feet on your right thousand feet below you you slip you fall you're dead but what we we weren't the first people to climb Meteorite. People have climbed and skied it before. But Jeremy and I were the first people to climb that route. And when we got to the bottom of it, we both had the same realization that we are climbing that route. And what we looked at it was, the the risk of falling in those scenarios is actually really low like you have crampons you have ice axes snow is really secure when it's like good and compact like that the only thing that pulls you off the mountain is overhead exposure being an avalanche that comes from above well most people climb the face that we kind of skied down not the spine and what we looked at is like the face; it feels more secure. You're not on a knife edge ridge. If you fall down it, you might actually survive. If you clear the bergschrund, that was the only trap that you could fall. You just get washed out into the to the flats. Like, sure, it's a thousand foot fall, but you're not going over a thousand feet of cliff like we would potentially. But the difference was there was overhead exposure. There was a giant cliff up to our right that was in the sun that, you know, rockfall can come off of, snow shedding can come off of, a small avalanche can come off of, and that would take you out. So like, that is something I have no control over. What I do have control over is being on that knife edge ridge and not falling. But all of a sudden, the things I don't have control over being overhead exposure and something coming down on me, I have none of that. I've eliminated that. So that point, all the safety relies in my hands, not gambling with mother nature. And these are those nuances of backcountry travel that only come through experience and only come through like working with professionals and mentorship from someone like Jeremy Jones. Um, So I look at those things as like it looked the scariest way, but that was the safest way. And people don't see that. And that's what's hard to really translate. And it's really hard to translate that to other people because I can't tell people like, no, climbing a meteorite in a knife-edge ridge for 3,000 vertical feet is super safe. You're like, well, it's not. There's a certain level of risk. But we actually made the safest decision in our minds to get up that mountain. Whereas... We did witness rock fall a little bit, like uh, some sloughs coming off if we were climbing and what felt like the safer place being on that kind of just face. Um, So these are those like nuances that are just uh, they're really hard to translate and they really come through time and experience. Um, And then it's also you you then have to start thinking about like, oh, am I those heuristics? Am I getting too complacent? Am I getting too? you know less fearful enough to make good decisions and it's it's a really interesting stuff and it's really hard to translate but i i almost hope with the project we're doing we're starting to like translate a little bit of these like kind of high end messages of, of safety back there and turning around and making the right decision, going the line that feels scarier, but is actually safer. So those kind of things are, they're pretty weird.
0: Did you have anything that you wanted to say coming back around to sort of this article, right? Where it's like, what we're actually seeing is more experienced people getting caught and or dying than like new people getting caught and dying any any thoughts of your own on
1: that yeah. Just the fact that if you're on social media, don't just make this about new people out there and this is what's causing it. Because if you are like, it didn't surprise me in the slightest bit, because if you are spending as much time in the back country and in this community, as much as I do, you already knew this. You already knew that it's the people that are experienced that are dying out there. Um, but it is good to get that message out there more and more that like, hey, no, the, the more time you spend out there and the more education you have, it's actually more likely that you are going to die. We teach that in our safe as clinics, like the most basic entry level. Like we're like, Hey, now you're in here. You're actually more likely to die in an avalanche now that you're here. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you, you got to teach that to people. So it's kind of, um, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You need education, but you also need to know that education can trap you too. So it's how you, how you interact with that education and how the decisions you make in the backcountry that truly determine your outcome out there. So I just, yeah, I mean, we're, The backcountry is a dangerous place. And that's the ultimate thing. And I think that's what we try and get across is like, hey, it's really dangerous. It's really, it's fun. It's empowering. It's amazing. I love it, but it's dangerous.
0: Our last episode of reviewing the news, I think we kind of made a joke about like we were going to talk about, you know, a favorite movie or something we watched. And we mentioned, I said, you know, I might I might talk about the Mountain Y. And you said, it's definitely going to make your list. I want to talk about the Mountain Y now, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, from the crowdsourcing of stuff, that was like the number one, actually, more than Deb Howland. So I think it's good to talk about that, I guess. I, I mean, it's like, yeah, we're... Re- Reviewing my own news that I created. Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: I ended up holding off to watch this until last night because I kind of, I knew we were going to talk this morning and I kind of wanted to have like come at this conversation with sort of, you know, a very fresh view. This film is a trip (laughs) and uh, I guess I, you know, I was saying to you before we started recording the film feels really to me like a Rorschach test. I you know, sometimes you know, I feel like if I'm going to talk to somebody about a film, I I sort of want to feel like I found my single thread or the particular message or something or you know, the the big takeaway. And I came away from this feeling like, yeah, I I either I don't yet have that handle or just feeling like if a thousand different people watch this film, there's going to be a lot more takeaways than someone or a lot more reactions than someone might have from a quote unquote typical ski film.
1: I don't know. Maybe I'll just start with, does that resonate to you? Yeah, no, it definitely does. Just because, well, one, I think the premise of it when it, it started from the beginning of the the ideation of the trip was like, I constantly have thought about myself. I'm like, why am I drawn to these stupid ideas? Like, I know this is going to be a suffer fest. I know this is going to be super hard, but I'm so drawn to it. And when I had had the idea, which is not a novel new idea, like plenty of people have done this. I was inspired by like, uh, I think it's this Cody James and Corey Hughes. I forget that I've. Blanking on their names, but they rode to Denali last year and climbed Denali. There's Goran Krop who rode from Sweden to Everest and climbed Everest with no oxygen and then rode his bike back. Like, you know, what we were doing was still kind of pales in comparison to what some people have already done. But like, why am I drawn to this? Like, why do I want to do this? So I think that was in my mind from it. And then the, but I knew from the beginning, I was like, you're not going to figure out that question, but I want to put that question out there. um, So that people kind of like, yeah, what is your takeaway from it? And I, you know, I, in the end, try and wrap it up in a tidy, nice little bow, but there's actually, it's not a tidy, nice little bow. It's actually pretty loosely knotted together. And like, you realize there's no true takeaway from these things. I think I try and sum it up in the best way possible of being that, you know, there's there's no there's a shallowness of purpose, but there's a depth of meaning. But what that means to you can be kind of an individual sort of thing. So, yeah, the the takeaways I've gotten from it have been pretty, pretty interesting because I would say most people are like, whoa, that looked like a suffer fest, which is the main takeaway, which, yes, it was. But then I've had some pretty powerful reactions that I've never had when making a film or anything I've done where like people were sending me some pretty personal stories and how like, you know, like, like their father just was diagnosed with cancer and they watched this together a day after their diagnosis and it really helped them. And I like, yeah, things can get hard, but you just kinda gotta take it one pedal stroke at a time. And I'm like, whoa, that's weird because, you know, this. That, you know this is just a bike trip to me and this was just a ski adventure and it kind of like I was in a certain way struggling with even going on an adventure during the pandemic and during the Black Lives Matter protests and just being like dude what are we doing like this is meaningless this is just utter bullshit of selfish pursuit and so getting some of those was like pretty powerful and it was interesting to see that because I did not intend it to be as such but the fact that I've gotten that feedback was like wow that's that's pretty cool, you know. It helped helped me almost justify doing it a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm curious to see. if, you know, as typical fashion, I only, I've only heard the good reviews as people send me. So I'd like to hear the bad reviews too. Um, I like I, I I'm like I I would rather have people that are good at media and peers tell me why it sucks. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'm gonna get better. But so far, it's been positive responses, which is
0: cool. Well, I don't have any. I don't have any of the smart. Media negative takes, I guess, on the film. What I mostly wanted to do was ask you certain sort of logistical questions. And then, you know, hopefully people just go watch this thing. That would be the best thing you could do. In hindsight, how well do you think you packed for this trip?
1: Uh, decently. I mean, definitely novice style beginner bike packing. I could have packed better. I could have packed packed a little lighter. I could have mainly just packed, like, better and a kind of a better setup for your bike and whatnot, but you just, that's, you... You can only know it by doing it. The one thing I will say I did really good job at um, was in my research, I found the importance of getting a very good bike seat was the most valued thing there was. So I bought this like $250 Brooks, England, custom-made, unbelievable saddle. Um, and my, you know, I my butthole definitely hurt for the first week of it, but it started, it, it like it wasn't to the point of like where I've heard of horror stories and you can't go anymore. And like it um so investing in a good bike seat, I think is the single most important thing. And I'm really glad I did that.
0: <laughs> I would have said from watching it, well, you can answer this then, that the more important thing than maybe even the best best saddle was going with the smaller front chain ring, which is something that comes up. Several times in the film, right? So you pick you. If if you had to do this trip again, would you give up your small front chain ring and keep your nice saddle, or go with a less nice saddle, but go Michelle Parker style and suffer more? I guess on the climbs.
1: I think I would just go still with the seat because, like, yeah, you can just suffer a little bit more. But there's like there's a kind of game-ending trip-ending quality to having a bad seat. Like, you dealing with taint pain that you're dealing with while spending 8 to 10 hours on a saddle pedaling a 100-pound bike, like... I could deal with a little bit of slower climbing and a little bit more leg fatigue, but like dealing with like, I can't sit down even on like four pillows cause my taint hurts so bad. That's like just a different level of like, I would rather, I would trade that out. But yeah, I was, I definitely was, I, I told her too. I was like, hey, I'm going from a 42 to a 36. Tooth front chain ring, and she was like, "Should I get smaller?" And she got her bike the day before we left, which was like insane. So, and I was like, "I would suggest it." So, yeah, I was cruising up hills, and she was suffering up hills. But you know, she likes to blame it all on the chain ring. But she also, I, I got some pretty big thighs too. So, <laughs> what was worse, breathing and inhaling all the
0: truck and car fumes? As you were biking along the side of highways and stuff,
1: or getting buzzed by trucks and cars. Yeah, getting buzzed by trucks and cars. You don't really feel the the like the heat and the smoke of like car fumes until you're going slow speeds in like the city. Like when we were going through Seattle, you can feel it. You feel like you're at a stoplight, you could just feel the exhaust hitting you. You're like, oh, this is gross. But like getting buzzed, like intentionally buzzed, like you would see big diesel trucks with Trump-Pence flags on the back, like slow down, get close to us and then black smoke us or just like swerve towards us and swerve back into the lane. And you just are like, dude, we she put it perfectly. It's like literally pulling a gun out and shooting at somebody intentionally missing and just leaving like it feels that way. You're like, fuck, I almost died like and it just you, you you, are, you like almost die, it feels like it every time. It is the worst part of road biking and by far the worst part of bikepacking. Like um, we tried to stay on back roads the entire time for multiple different reasons, but more than ever, it's like, I wanna stay on back roads just to avoid cars because going on major highways and getting buzzed is just terrible. Like it sucks so bad. I have to say, one of
0: the most impressive things in the film to me was, you know, you guys are talking about how exhausted you are and like cramping up in the rest. But of the skiing you guys do, at least the footage that makes it in the film, your skiing actually looks good. Whereas like, you know, like when you're at the resort and you've just been banging laps all day, but you're like, yeah, you know, we should probably go in, but we're still going to try to sneak in, you know, before four o'clock and get one more in and your legs are just jello. And like, if you're, I don't know, skiing up, you're still trying to ski hard, but your legs are gone. I mean, I have this experience, like, you know, like. Not this weekend, but you know, you have it from time to time. And it's like, man, if you're trying to ski well, but your legs are gone, that's like a real prime opportunity to just blow out a knee or something. And given how much damn riding you guys did just to get to the base of the mountain to then skin up or hike up, then getting to the top, then having to drop. If you looked more like, you know, newborn baby giraffe legs on skis, that wouldn't have surprised me in the least. So I was like, what's happening here? Did they just like, is this actually fake footage that they just took from some other time? Because I was like, the skiing might look too good here. Help me understand this.
1: I think that's the benefit of being a professional skier. You can figure out how to ski like almost like skeletally or you can f- look good without even necessarily be having good leg strength. I don't know. Like I feel like I've always said that to people who's like, Oh, aren't your legs tired? I'm like, No, I can figure out how to ski on the way down, down anything. And like that, like I that's what I do. So um to me, Yeah, like there's also this other thing is like, yeah, your legs are really tired, but I was found like it's such different muscles than your skiing. And like I've been finding that with my training this year, like with all this endurance training I've been doing now, I've been like banging hill laps. And it's such a different muscle set and such a different way you use your muscles. Uh, I don't know, it almost like, yeah, like we on hood, we were like, whoa, wonder how this is gonna feel. And then you're ripping turns and it feels great. But you almost feel like even though it's your quads, you feel like it's different muscles. And then like, like I said, I don't know, you can I just rely on the fact that this is what you do. You're a professional and you can, you can get it done. I, that's why I feel with it.
0: <laughs> well, I was impressed. A lot of the times I'm watching it, it's just being like, these guys are dumb or I feel bad for them, but I was impressed with the turns. So good job. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I was curious, you know, you guys have a, an ascent and descent of Rainier where you aren't allowed to bring cameras in. And so you very, very quickly talk about in specific, the ascent where you were like, and then we kind of camped halfway up and kept it going. And I I was like, wait a minute, there seems like a lot of, you know, stuff that got left out here. And I guess I would be curious to ask you, this would be kind of the director's cut part, maybe of the mountain why, but any particularly interesting anecdotes or things to talk about that, you know, you didn't get to cover in the film itself?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, first off, like we said, we don't have it in the film because we didn't get permits and the reason we didn't get permits was pretty much because not for any reason of what we were doing like I had gotten permits before on Rainier I emailed the, the crew and they're like hey Cody yeah we love your stuff let me get this said like they were they were really friendly it's just that there wasn't enough time to get it and because they've been they were closed and they were understaffed and whatnot and it has to go all the way up to supervisor level and then they were like this doesn't have enough time to get approved so we actually didn't find out that we didn't get approved for permits till the day we came out because there was no cell service so there actually is footage of the entire ascent and descent um, that exists i just can't publish it so that's the way it's gonna happen and i'm gonna honor that i'm not gonna break the break their rules but um to tell the story of it it was kind of unfortunate because it kind of ties into how exhausted we were but like one just the bike up to the top of the the road was brutal like 26 miles and five and a half thousand vert and it was just up the entire time no break sustained we got up there we were punched and then the next day the huge packs we climbed to 9000 10000 feet we one of the interesting thing was too and this worked out was so the mountain above 10500 feet was actually closed all the way until June 19th um because Because of the pandemic, I think they were short-staffed with rescue services. I don't think they wanted a lot of people up there and having to like rally a bunch of people into a helicopter to go rescue someone, because that could be pretty dangerous for the rescuers themselves. So in the two weeks of rain that we had, we actually gained closer and closer to the time that the mountain actually opened. So the day it opened, we were camped below the 10,500 foot line and the morning it opened, went to the summit. So we were the first summiters of the season, which was interesting. There was a couple of other parties, but I guess no one else made it to the summit that day, which I don't know why. It was pretty clear. It was a perfect day, um, beautiful sunrise, great temps, we got up top. It was like cold and the skiing down was really good. The Fear of Finger skis so good. It's like such a great descent. Um, there's some technical terrain, mainly just in the terms of glaciers, so you rope up and whatnot, but pretty straightforward. The one thing I will say about Rainier is, like, things a big mountain. Like, it is... It is a big, nasty mountain. It is like, it is as good of training for Denali as it gets. You have to use glacier navigation. You have to watch your overhead exposure. Like it's a serious, serious mountain. Um, So it is, it's really cool. Um, And the ski down was awesome. The other antidote to it that we didn't get to show is like, yeah, we like, we get to the summit, ski off the summit, we pack up camp, we ski back down, hike back to our cars, we unload our stuff, we pack up our bikes, we jumped on our bikes, rode all the way down to the bottom, rode another 25 miles, and then just kept riding the next day. It was like, that's why we were so exhausted. We did three days up and down Rainier and then four days straight of biking into one day up Eldorado. And it was just like, I mean, no recovery in the in between 100 mile days. It was absolutely brutal. Which
0: is a nice segue into my next question how bummed were you that you were maybe getting like, ah, we're losing time on the bike versus how kind of glad were you that you were getting more time to recover?
1: Just straight bummed. Like you only need a couple days for recovery and we had got that. And at that point, all of a sudden, it just feels like this this sunk cost and we didn't even know if like one, the rain, is it just melting everything away and Uh we didn't even be able to ski it? are we going to get a weather window? Like it was two weeks straight of just pissing rain. Magically, the only three days that were clear were the days that the mountain finally opened to the summit, which was incredible. And then it closed back down again. Um, But it was like, no, you all of a sudden ride 800 miles to do this big mission and ski three lines. And you only, at one point were like, cool. Maybe we can get to ski hood. Like, fuck, like really, like we're going to do all this and just get shut down by weather and I'm going to have to come back and do this again. Like it would just felt like I was definitely a little like, fuck, fuck, fuck. This sucks. This sucks. This is and I don't get that way. I'm usually like I don't get that heli crazy when people are sitting inside. I don't complain about it. But that was kind of felt like we really rode our bikes 800 miles to the base of this mountain and are going to sit at it for weeks on end (laughs) and it's never going to open up. My wife's going, like, when are you guys going to be done? <laughs> like, I've been at home for a month by myself. And I'm like, yeah, I know. This sucks. This is terrible. This, oh, my God, what are we what are we doing? This was a stupid idea. So it mainly just had all those, like, that's what was driving me crazy. And just start thinking about how dumb this idea was.
0: <laughs> by the way, Elise is always my favorite character in your movies. When she just has, it's like, absolutely out of like a Wes Anderson film when Elise yeah. just shows up for like five seconds to just say into the microphone this is stupid and then like yeah. you guys go do your thing that's always my favorite part of your films I will say
1: yeah it's great because she's always my voice of reason she's always the like yeah that's not a that smart idea and she just she just represents a majority of people that look at it and go like you you chose to ski ice and suffer, not ski powder and like ski out of helicopters. You're like you're an idiot. I'm like <laughs> I know. Thanks, <laughs> okay,
0: last question here. Then you call this the physically hardest thing that you've ever done in your life, which is kind of saying something at this point. So I don't have a specific question here, but I'd like to hear you talk
1: more about that. I would say like it's really hard to show that kind of level of exhaustion. And we tried to do it. You know, the hard part of making this film is like 55 hours of footage in a month and a half condensed down to 37 minutes. And I was trying to show like every little segment you felt. And it really was like one of the things I say in it, and it's just like two seconds in it, but it has so much meaning when you're trying to condense things down was that those last seven days, like I hit a point of pure, absolute, dead exhaustion three days before we even did Eldorado. Like I was like, I'm done. I can't get out of bed. And then we went for another 125 miles of riding with like 10,000 vertical feet with hundred pound bikes and then climbed six and a half thousand vert to go ski Eldorado. It was like, I, that last day, you kind of can sort of see it on me, but I say like, don't trust me for good decision-making today, like, which was a controversial thing to put in there. Like, my editors were like, do you want to put that in there? And I was like, well, yeah, because, like, I was trying to illustrate the fact that I was, like, practically hallucinating. I was so tired. Michelle, we were just, like, on a different level of exhaustion. And our saving grace was we had Bjarne there who had been driving and who was not on our exhaustion level. And I would almost bring that up to say to him, like, dude, like watch us because like, I can't think anymore. I can't do anything. And like those last thousand feet to, to the top of Eldorado, it was like, I took every single, every step was a thought of like, just one more step, just one more step, just one more step. And I've never pushed myself that hard. Um, I will say, I think I'm still suffering from some effects of that trip. I definitely uh we were joking around like oh we're gonna get back we're gonna be such strong mountain bikers like we're gonna crush strava times on our mountain bikes i went for a mountain bike two weeks after this i was like the slowest i've ever been on a mountain bike it took us michelle and i a solid month to recover from it um and then i still think i have some like some effects i'm finally starting to get over from this trip like it was debilitating on a different level and. All I think about it too is makes me think like how the fuck do those Tour de France riders do it? How the fuck do these people do this? Because I got a glimpse of it, and I'm not an athlete like that. And it is it is nuts. One, how far you can push your body, and two, how much it affects your body. It's it's pretty interesting. I find a lot of I find a lot of insight into pushing yourself beyond your means, and uh, that was I think the purpose of the film was trying to kind of. We're we're pushing ourselves collectively right now with our struggles in our world, and we're pushing ourselves in our challenges, and you can learn a lot from it.
0: The Mountain Why?
1: Where should people go to watch it? Well, it's going to be launching on my YouTube channel. So the 50 on the YouTube channel. Otherwise, uh, Red Bull, any of the Red Bull TV apps or free streaming sites. Um, so uh, you can, if you have the Red Bull TV thing app on your uh, smart TV or your Apple TV, it's it's there. So you can check it out on any of those Red Bull stuff, or otherwise on my YouTube channel. Excellent. Hey man, I'm
0: going to let you get going. As always, good to talk and catch up and try to wrap our heads around some of the news of the day. Yeah, appreciate it. And I mostly hope that the residents of Girdwood don't murder you over your disrespect for their favorite coffee maker.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm going to be regretting this podcast. I know. yeah, well, we'll see.
0: I'm quite concerned, but not not so concerned that I, we're not going to air this, but I'm still concerned. Right, that's why
1: wearing face masks <laughs> is a benefit these days, both go. in COVID era and for hiding your identity. <laughs> so weird. people of Girdwood, don't kill me because your coffee sucks. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, man. All right. Awesome. Good to talk to out of it. Well, that's it for
0: this edition of The Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to The Blister Podcast, leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte and Gunnison, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Have a very happy New Year's, and we will talk to you again in the new year, actually exactly on January 1st, 2021, over on our Gear 30 channel. So take care, happy New Year, and we'll see you on January 1st over on Gear 30. Bye, everybody.